Well, good evening and thank you to all those who have taken part so far in the service. It's my privilege to bring the service to a conclusion and bring God's word. If you've been with us over this past year, you'll know that we began our studies in Luke's Gospel uh, a year last January. And now we're coming towards the end of Luke's Gospel. We will complete it, God willing, at Easter with the Easter story. But now we come to those final hours in the life of Jesus, very momentous moments, very crucial moments in human history. The night, the evening of his final betrayal, and then the crucifixion that came the next day. And so these are very wonderful moments to ponder and very serious moments. So if you've got a Bible, it will help to turn to Luke 22. Page 1057 in the Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, it really will help to have one. You may think this is a long series, but in actual fact we're dealing with it in quite large chunks. 38 verses this evening. Could have been two or three years if we'd gone slowly. Uh, But let's read the first 38 verses. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented. And watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house... The teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his disciples, apostles, reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? 
The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock grows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. This is God's word. Now, before we look at it, let's sing a song together, which picks up one of those themes about the one who's... Pray again, ask God to help us to understand his word and help me to explain it clearly. Lord God, we thank you for the record of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ preserved in these four gospel accounts. And as we've traced that story with Luke over these weeks and months, we pray now as we come to the most important moments in human history that you'll help us to grasp the significance of what is recorded here. And as, as it were, as we eavesdrop into conversations, follow the action that we might be participants by responding to the one who is indeed your servant, but also King, King of kings and Lord of lords. So help us, we pray, and help me to explain your word clearly. In Jesus' name, Amen. As you will have seen in the news this week, uh, the battle for the White House is hotting up. While John McCain has secured the Republican nomination, uh, the battle for the Demo between the Democrats, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, looks like going to the wire. And all this, of course, is preliminary to the real battle in November when Americans will choose their next president. There is an enormous amount at stake for what has been generally called the most important and powerful position on earth. Yet no one, from the candidates themselves to the most astute political pundit, let alone uh, the ordinary voter, knows who will be sworn in to succeed George Bush. Or even what may happen between now and November. 2,000 years ago, another battle took place for something of far greater importance than any earthly prize or possession. At stake was the future of humanity, the destiny of every person, past and present, indeed of every one of us here today. God himself had stepped into human history in the person of his son, Jesus, on a mission to save the world. And the stories recorded in four different accounts 
in this book, the Bible, in the New Testament part. And for many months, as we've heard, we've been tracing the story written by this careful historian called Luke. Early in his account, Luke described the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And its announcement by angels to startle shepherds, which we've chosen as a title for our series, the words that were given to them. Good news of great joy for all people. Now, as we approach the end of Luke's gospel, the good news, that's what gospel means, the battle lines between Jesus and the forces of evil are sharply drawn. And it looks to all appearances as those who oppose Jesus are about to bring his life to a premature end. Now, I imagine that most of you here know how the story ends. That Easter Sunday follows Good Friday. But imagine that you're actually there at that point in time, that you are part of the story, an actor in the drama that unfolds on this Thursday before Good Friday. If you are among the opponents of Jesus... It looks as though you are going to win. But if you are among the followers of Jesus, it looks as if you and he are going to lose. But in fact, we will discover as we look closely at Luke's gospel and his account, things are not what they seem. The outcome is not what is anticipated. Most important of all, as we read this account, we discover that Jesus himself is in no doubt of the outcome. As we read Luke's description of the evening of the day before the death of Jesus, we see in fact that everything is going according to plan. So turn with me again to Luke's account that we read, because I want to take you through it. We could spend many hours looking at these passages I'll try and limit myself to around 30 minutes or so. Here's how I want to look at it, and this is not the only way you can look at this passage, but I think it will be a helpful way to look at it. What I want to say to you as we look at these verses, these 38 verses, is this. There are two plans in place. Two plans in place. We've recommended various books if you want to study Luke's gospel. If you want one that gives you a broad brush treatment rather than a verse-by-verse treatment and is shorter than the rest, but is an excellent account giving you an overview of Luke's gospel, the Bible Speaks Today commentary on Luke by Michael Wilcox is very good. And I want to take the two headings that Wilcox himself does and suggest to you that here in these verses we have these two plans in place. The plan of destruction, which you'll see in verses 1 to 6, And then in verses 7 to 38, the plan of salvation. And I want to look at each in turn. So first of all, then, the plan of destruction. In these opening verses of the chapter, Luke describes the conspirators involved in the plot to kill, to destroy Jesus. The parties in the plot. First of all, there is the religious leadership in Israel the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Ever since Jesus burst onto the stage of national life in Israel three years ago with his radical message of repentance, he has been opposed by the religious leaders in Israel. And as his popularity with the people has begun to grow, along with increasingly potent and pointed denunciation of the religious leaders and confounding of them in public debate, so their opposition to Jesus is intensified. And now they're going to do everything they can to destroy him. You see, the fact was, and still is, Jesus is a very divisive person. 
You are either for him or against him. This congregation divides itself into two clear groups. You're either for Jesus or against him. If you're in that wishy-washy group in the middle that says, well, I couldn't care less either way, seems okay to me, and you're fairly neutral, I would simply say to you, you've never really studied seriously who Jesus was and what Jesus said. In fact, one of the purposes of of this extended series in Luke's Gospel, and this is the 45th, is to confront us with the real Jesus. The uncomfortable Jesus who calls on people to count the cost and to follow him. Maybe you're still this evening sitting on the fence. I would suggest to you, if you continue there, you'll find it a very increasingly uncomfortable, painful place to sit. And sooner or later, you will have to choose sides. And for those who choose to follow Jesus, you will find, as he warned, and we saw in our study this morning with Colin, that even your closest relationships will be threatened by your relationship with Jesus. Luke 21 Verse 16, you will be, Jesus said to his followers, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives and friends. They will even put some of you to death. That may be an extreme outcome, but many people in the world still face that or the equivalent. I think some years ago of a young Muslim woman who was baptized and her father, who was a well-to-do business leader in his community back home, told his friends and family, my daughter is dead. Now what the disciple of Jesus may face, their master did face, as the resolve of the religious leadership hardens into the determination to do away with this troublesome teacher for good as Passover approached. Verses 1 to 2. Now the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests The teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Now, the Passover, if you don't know, was the festival that celebrated the rescue of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt under Moses. Another writer, Daryl Bock, comments on the irony in this fact. The setting is full of irony. In the midst of this holiday season that celebrates life, the leadership schemes to end the life of one who came to bring life. But the religious leaders have a problem. How can they do away with Jesus safely when he's surrounded by crowds that have recently welcomed him into the city with great acclaim with palm branches and praise? Luke 19:28 to 40. Their prayers, or at least their plans, are resolved from an unexpected quarter with a second player in the plot, the betrayer. Judas called Iscariot one of the twelve. Now, despite recent attempts to rehabilitate Judas and give his image a makeover, and suggestions that he misguidedly took the action he did to try and force the hand of Jesus into taking action to lead a revolt against the Romans, the bottom line is that Judas, one of the twelve apostles chosen by Jesus, decided to betray his master. Whether, as the Gospel accounts tell us, he was driven by a love of money, The frightening fact is, and think of this, here is a man who was with the Son of God for three years, 24-7. He heard his teaching. He saw his miracles. He even went out on missions sent by Jesus, in which he preached, healed the sick, cast out demons in the name of Jesus, yet in his heart he was never a true follower of Jesus. Now, if that is not sobering, then nothing is. 
is a stark warning to every one of us who has been associated with Jesus that studying his life, listening to sermons, attending church, even becoming a church member, getting baptized, are no ultimate proof of true discipleship, of actual conversion, of real regeneration, that you are born again in the Spirit of God. Yes, I believe the Bible teaches that once you are saved, you are always saved. I also believe that it teaches the perseverance of the saints. And the only proof that you are a saint is that you persevere to the end. This Judas failed to do. And his story is a tragic warning for the state of his heart, as always is seen in the action that he takes when the chips are down. And Judas went, verse 4, to the chief priests, and the officers of the temple garden discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. So, here are the two actors, Judas and the religious leaders conspiring to kill Jesus. But there is a third party in the story lurking in the shadows. The devil here calls Satan, which means the accuser. This is actually, if you've been through Luke's Gospel, this is the first mention of the devil since way back in chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus after his baptism in the wilderness. On that occasion, the devil was defeated by Jesus. But that doesn't mean he had given up his attempt to derail the mission of the Messiah. In fact, his most effective work was and is done in the background, in the shadows, using other people to do his bidding. As we've seen again in Luke's Gospel, some of his agents are demonic powers. But now we see he also uses human beings. Just as the religious leaders have been looking for someone to aid them in their plot to destroy Jesus, so Satan has been on the lookout for someone who will do his bidding and help them achieve the same goal. And that person is Judas, called Iscariot. He's the ideal person. He's an insider. But more than that, as we've seen, his heart is not right. Now, I guess, well, I know all the other disciples didn't spot it. None of them knew the state of his heart. Only two people knew the state of Judas's heart. Jesus and the devil. And let me simply say to you this evening, I can make a fair guess as a pastor how you're doing spiritually, where you stand with God, but I can be wrong and I have been wrong in the past. Only the Lord knows those who are his and those who aren't. And so does the devil. And so we read, at the opportune moment, then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priest and the officer of the temple guard, discussed with them how he might betray Jesus, verses 3 to 4. Satan entered Judas. Very sobering words. It doesn't necessarily mean that he was fully possessed by the devil, but it does mean that the devil entered his life to help him fulfill his demonic purposes. Nor does it mean that Judas was somehow taken over against his will, like some kind of horror film where a zombie is taken over by some power. Satan is, a get, Satan is behind his actions, but Judas is fully responsible for the betrayal of Jesus. And you and I are fully responsible when we sin and fail to repent. Writing to the Christians in Ephesus, Ephesians 4.27, the Apostle Paul warns Christians, he says, be careful not to give the devil a foothold in their hearts and lives. In this case, it was through unconfessed anger. Judas has given not just a foothold in his life, but full entry into his heart as he determines to betray Jesus. So here we have the plot of destruction in place. 
So they delighted the leaders, they were delighted and agreed to give him money. Matthew tells us, Matthew 26:15, that the amount was 30 silver coins. And so we also see the decision of Judas. He consented and waited for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Now everything is in place. This is the great drama. And the stakes could not be higher. Bach again writes, the account shows that the events surrounding Jesus' ministry are part of a larger cosmic drama between great spiritual powers. Heaven and hell are interested in the fate of Jesus. In the great chess match, this is Satan's move to remove Jesus from the game. And it looks as though, with the insider Judas in place, ready to strike, that Satan will succeed with his plan of destruction. Thankfully, this is not the case. For we see that another plan is already in place, has long been in place. So turn now to the plan of salvation, verses 7 to 38. In his gospel, if you've been with us in this series, and you can listen to stuff from the past on the internet, you can download it or get tapes or DVDs. In his gospel, Luke describes seven meals in the gospel in which Jesus participates. This is number five, and it's the most important one of all, for it is a farewell meal with the disciples. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about it. There is much scholarly debate about when this meal took place and whether it is a true Passover. Luke describes it as a Passover celebration, yet it appears from the other gospels that the Passover was not on the Thursday, but on the Friday when Jesus died. I will not bore you with the details of the solutions proposed to try and get around this difficulty. Rather, what I want to focus on here is something that I hadn't seen, and I've been reading the Bible now for most of my life, over 60 years. Well, I learned to read when I was about two, I think. But um, What I want you to see, which I hadn't really seen before, it's a wonderful thing. Can I just say, it's a wonderful thing about the Bible. You think you know it, you read it, you read it in the original languages, you read commentaries and everything, and then you read it again, you think, oh, how did I miss that? That's a great thing God keeps speaking to you. He has more light to break forth from his word, as the reformers believed and I believe. So, um, what I want to, the perspective I want you to look at with me is what Luke seems to focus on in these verses. That at this meal, notice, Jesus is calm and in control of the situation, that, that everything is going according to plan. Now, just trace that with me, all right? This is seen, first of all, in the future preparations for the meal, verses 7 through 13. Look what Jesus does. He sends two trusted disciples, Peter and John. He says, go and make pre- preparations for us to eat the Passover. Now, you need to know a bit about the background. At this time of year, Jerusalem was thronged with pilgrims who had come to celebrate Passover in the following week of unleavened bread, which were all kind of rolled into one as one big holiday. A festival, really. Uh, And what was everyone doing? Well, they were all looking for premises to have have their Passover meal in. It was customary for the residents, the citizens of Jerusalem, to make furnished rooms with tables and couches that people reclined on when they had meals in those days available, uh, Again, I learned something new this week. I was doing some research on this. They didn't charge any money for this. Uh, The charge was you were supposed to leave the skin of the sacrificial lamb and the utensils for the owners of the house. That was a kind of payment for it. Uh, So Peter and John asked Jesus, look, he's going to be pretty busy. Where do you want us to go and prepare for it? And they discovered that Jesus had already made preparations. He gives instructions on how to find the location. 
Look at verses 10 to 12. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large upper room, all furnished, make preparations there. Now, why would the man stand out? Well, you probably think it's because he was carrying water. That was a woman's job. In actual fact, men did carry water. The, the marked sign here is not that the man is carrying water, but that he's carrying water in a jar. Because only women carried water in jars. Uh, men carried water in leather skin. So this man would stand out from the crowd. It is clear that this is all prearranged, like the donkey that Jesus arranged to take him into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And the owner of the house already knows Jesus. Uh, so Peter and John set out to make preparations. They needed to obtain a lamb that had been sacrificially killed in the temple by one of the priests between the hours of 2.30 and 5.30. All this information is peripheral, but you might be interested in it. Uh, they had to buy unleavened bread for the festival, bitter herbs, and wine to drink for the meal. And they discover, as Jesus said, that everything has already been arranged. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Now, what's the point of this? Well, the point is this. Uh, Jesus makes these future preparations to show that he is in control of the situation. Peter and John find the room. Judas doesn't know where it is. He's looking for a good chance. You imagine the upper room with him in a great place to bring along the soldiers to arrest Jesus. But Jesus is in control. Judas may be looking for the right time and place to betray Jesus, but it won't be in the chosen upper room. He doesn't know where it is. His time and place will come later. When Jesus chooses. That's the first thing. And so preparations made. Jesus and the twelve gather for their evening Passover meal. Look at verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, to me, that's a remarkable verse. In fact, it's very intense in the original language. Literally, it says, in the original Greek, it says, with desire have I desired. It's a way of expressing intensity. Jesus says, the thing I most long for at this particular point in my life, before I suffer and die, is to share this meal with you. And then he looks around at the twelve, and, and what were they like? One was going to betray him, one was going to deny him, all the rest were going to run away, and before he'd barely finished, they were going to be arguing about who was the greatest. And he still said, I really want to share this meal with you. Now, to me, that's really encouraging. I know people who never come to communion because they think I'm not worthy. Jesus wouldn't want me there. You don't know what kind of sinner I am. Jesus says, I've eagerly desired to share this meal with you before I suffer. That, to me, is absolutely amazing. But as we come to the story itself, we see that knowing he will and must suffer, Jesus is absolutely sure of how things are going to turn out. Of the future fulfillment, that comes out in verses 14 to 27. For I tell you, Jesus says, I will not eat of it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. There's a fulfillment coming in the future. He doesn't say if or maybe if it all works out. He says it will find fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now the meal, of course, is a Passover meal celebrated down the centuries by God's chosen people Israel and by Jesus as a loyal and pious Jew. But this familiar meal is given a new meaning and a new celebration for future generations of those who will follow Jesus and be united with him in all the benefits of his death and suffering and resurrection. The Passover meal, you can still go to these kind of meals. Of course, they're still observed today. There are Christian groups that 
can go along and they'll explain to you how the meal works and everything. The Passover meal had four courses. And each course was accompanied by a cup of wine. Uh, Luke alone records two cups. All the other Gospels, they're just the one cup and, and the bread. Uh, probably the first and the third. Uh, the first cup is a cup of thanksgiving. Right at the beginning of the celebration. In fact, the, the, what we call the Lord's Supper, communion, is sometimes called by some people the Eucharist, which simply means thanksgiving. from the Greek verb to give thanks. Uh, and the usual words spoken are, as you offer the wine, you hold it up and say, Blessed are you who created the fruit of the vine. Somewhat equivalent to our grace before we say meals. But Jesus gives and speaks additional words. Notice again the future element. After taking the cup, this is verse 17, he gave thanks and said, Take and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This is a meal we'll celebrate, there's going to be suffering, but at the end, God's kingdom will come. It's all going to be okay. Then he gives bread in another cup, probably the third one this time, uh, verse 19, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. When Jesus celebrates this, he is looking forward to what lay ahead. He himself will be the Passover lamb who gives his body and blood for the forgiveness of sin. And what is he doing? He's establishing, fulfilling the new covenant. Now, if you're with us in our series in Jeremiah last year, was it last year? Um, you'll know that it was Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, who prophesied the new covenant. And Jesus picks up those words from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Uh, and he explains that it's being fu- fulfilled before their very eyes. Everything is in control. It's going according to plan. Now, when we share that meal in what we call communion, the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, the Eucharist, whatever tradition you come from, really matter in one sense the title, we look back and we remember his death. To remember is not about nostalgia. Oh, I remember what Jesus did, how sad. It is to remember what he did and then think of the benefits of it for you now in the present. That is to remember, it is an active verb. We share in them as God's redeemed people. And just pause for a moment and ask here, um, are you participating in all that Jesus achieved through his death? Not just in taking bread and wine when you come to church, which I hope you do. Jesus said to do it in remembrance of him because we forget the benefits. We forget what he did. But are you experiencing all that it symbolizes? The bread and wine, forgiveness, peace with God. Let me speak to those of you who are not Christians. Jesus longs. He came into the world to save sinners. He longs that you might share with him in his most intimate relationship uh, and in the Far East, uh, in the East in those days and still today, you express intimacy by sharing intimate meals with people. That's how you share fellowship. We've kind of detached it. We have this kind of, you know, this religious ceremony detached from meals. It's sometimes good to, to do it at a meal time. Um, Jesus desires fellowship with you. He longs for you to share with him. But the great warning is don't be like Judas. You see, you can be in Charlotte Chapel this evening. You can have friends who are Christians, close friends. You can know what it's all about and you can hear sermons and, uh, and whatever. But in your heart of hearts, you're not a true follower of Jesus. Look what Jesus says after all this. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man 
who betrays him. Yes, uh, the new covenant will be established. Alice, you need to wind down a little bit, I think. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, the new covenant will be established. The future kingdom will come. The plan is in place. And the betrayal by Judas is not a hitch in the plan. You know, one of these things that he's got to work around because he wasn't expecting it. It is part of the plan. It is decreed. But for the other 11, there is the promise of future honour, verses 24 to 30. The debate among the apostles as to which of them is going to betray him soon degenerates into a much worse debate as to which of them was the greatest. It's quite sad, isn't it, reading this story, this, this most moving and memorable occasion. Uh, Leon Morrison, another commentator, writes, With Jesus so close to the cross, his most intimate followers were so far from him in spirit, arguing about who was the greatest. And thankfully for them, and for us, for so often, we, like them, do the same thing, even right after a communion service. Jesus doesn't dismiss them and say, look, you've just got this wrong. I've really made a mistake with you guys. I need to just, just forget you. And, you know. uh, he patiently reminds them once again, and he's taught them this before, that those who lead must be those who serve. They should be radically different, like him, from the usual rulers in society. They use their power for their own ends. They like to be called benefactors and be patted on the back for their acts of charity and goodness. Jesus says, be like me, the one who waits, the one who serves. Yet, Jesus doesn't finish by focusing on that. Notice again the final assurance that they will learn the lesson, that they will learn to serve, and that having identified with Jesus in his trials, they will share what? In his future kingdom. Here's what he says to those people who have just been arguing about who's the greatest. And I confer on you a kingdom. Just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It's 29 to 30. However, this does not mean that they will not fail or fall. But when they do, Jesus promises future restoration. Verses 31 to 34. Look what it says uh, Jesus then turns and speaks to Simon. Uh, that's Peter, of course, using his old name, his original name. Uh, you need to notice the, 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 the plurals and singulars here. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you, that's plural, all the disciples. He got Judas, he's out to get you, grind you up. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, singular Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say, and if you turn back, there's still hope for you. He says, no, when you turn back, I've prayed for you, so that when you turn back... Now, Peter may be full of self-confidence. He protests loyalty, undying loyalty to the Lord. But Jesus knows that Peter will deny him three times before dawn breaks the next day. But he also knows that Peter will be restored, both to fellowship with him and to future service for others. We'll see, God willing, for Lord tarries in the next in our series next Sunday, that Peter does fail. You know the story. He denies Jesus before a servant girl three times. But the record of Scripture is that the prayers of Jesus for his people always prevail. Isn't that encouraging as well? You a failure this evening, Christian? You've denied Jesus? turned against him, done something that you're embarrassed about. If we could put it on the screen, you'd run out because you were too embarrassed to see it. 
You're a professing Christian. Made a mess of it. Done something silly. Sinful. And if you belong to Christ, he prays for you that your faith will not fail. And he looks forward because he longs to restore you to fellowship with him. Maybe there's someone here this evening. God has used you in the past. And now you've made a complete mess of it. And you're sitting there thinking, this is not for me. Yes, it is. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ intercedes for you, prays for you, that your faith will not fail. And he looks to restore you to fellowship with him. And not only that, to future service. God can use you again. Don't listen to the devil who says to you, no, 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 you've blown it. That's it. You're finished for good. It's maybe a word just for some one person here this evening. Maybe. I don't know. Holy Spirit can apply that to you. It's not an encouragement, of course, to go out and fail. <laughs> but to know that when we do fail, as the little book of Jude concludes, that he is able to keep us from falling and finally to present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Jude 24. Now finally, before they leave the room and as we come to the end of this, Jesus speaks to the eleven. Judas has already left. Luke doesn't record it, but the other Gospels do. And he speaks about future suffering. Verses 35 to 38. You may wonder, what, what are these verses got to do here? They don't kind of fit in and all this business about swords. Let me just try and explain it as best I can. As far as I know. Jesus says, circumstances are about to change. Whereas before, the apostles could go out on mission in the name of Jesus and be popularly received by the people. They didn't even need to take any provisions or protection because everyone provided for them and gave them food and lodging and no one was out to get them. Jesus says things are about to change. Now you'll have to fend for yourselves. You'll need a purse. You'll need a bag. You'll even need a sword, just a short sword, which was a means of protection for travelers in those days. And the reason? Because you'll be associated with me. Because I'm going to be a suffering saviour. And if you follow me, you'll be a suffering servant. I'm about to suffer. Again, look at verse 37. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfilment. Yes, he says, everything is coming to fruition. The plan is being fulfilled. It's all going according to plan, to God's plan. A plan conceived before time began. A plan laid out in detail. Here he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 12. That great chapter about the suffering servant of the Lord. This one verse he picks out about his suffering. What Isaiah prophesied is being fulfilled in me. Accurately described. Precisely fulfilled. Now, of course, the disciples don't understand this. And they do a quick check among themselves and say to Jesus, We've got two swords. And Jesus says, that's enough. Not that's enough swords, but that's enough of that talk about swords. You've missed the point. And if you think some people see this as a critical point in the life of Jesus, he told people to carry swords. It's not long after this, just, just an hour or two, when Peter takes his sword and chops the ear off the high priest's servant, and Jesus says, put your sword up. That's not my way. And he heals the man. He is injured. Nearly finished. I say something in conclusion. So as we'll see, God willing, next Sunday, Jesus goes out to the Mount of Olives accompanied by these 11 apostles. Now, Jesus is going according to plan. He's going where? To the cross. On the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter, now restored, as Jesus promised, strengthening his brothers. 
stands up and gives this great sermon to the crowd, among them the people who helped to crucify Jesus and cried for his death. Notice what he says to them. Acts 2.23 This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. It's an amazing verse. What is he saying? You did it, but God planned it. God planned it, you did it. Don't ask me how to explain how the two things go together. But everything has gone according to plan. I began with an illustration about the outcome of the battle for the White House. Let me just finish by reminding you of an American who was elected. One who was regarded by many as one of the great modern presidents of the United States, John F. Kennedy. As you all know, on November the 22nd, 1963, he was shot and killed in Dallas, Texas. He was 46 years old. In 2003, 40 years after his death, the historian Robert Dalek wrote a book about him. It aroused considerable controversy. It was about Kennedy's private life and his illnesses and so on. Uh, but his main thesis is this. That President Kennedy died prematurely for there was so much he could and would have achieved had he lived. And the title of the book is Significant, An Unfinished Life. An Unfinished Life. When Jesus was killed outside Jerusalem at the age of 33, it was a different story. It was a case of mission fulfilled, mission accomplished. John records, he cried out, it is finished, bowed his head, gave of his spirit. It all went according to plan, God's plan, his perfect plan. Now you can oppose him, go your own way, try to destroy him, but you're doomed to failure. The wise course is to follow him. He'll finish the work of salvation, win the battle on the cross, so that you might be forgiven, reconcile with God, and live a life according to his perfect plan. Let's pray together.